Let's continue to worship hymn number 272, The Power of the Cross. Let's stand together. To see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross Christ became sin for us took the blame bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross oh to see the pain written on your face Bearing the awesome weight of sin Every bitter thought Every evil deed Crowning your blood-stained brow This the power of the cross Christ became Sin for us took the blame, bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. Now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead erased to life, finished the victory cry. This the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame. For the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, one through yourself, bless love. This the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cause. We stand forgiven at the him. Amen. Turn to 42. Our great God. Hymn number 42. <clears throat> oh <clears throat> God, unchanging, mysterious and unknown. Your boundless love, unfailing in grace and mercy shown. Bright seraphim in ceaseless flight around your glorious throne. They raise their voices day and night in praise to you alone. Glory be to our great God. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. 
Lord, we are weak and frail and are helpless in the storm. Surround us with your angels and hold us in your arms. Our cold and ruthless enemy, his pleasures is our harm. Rise up, O Lord, and be will flee before our sovereign God. Hallelujah! Glory be to our great God. Hallelujah! Glory be to our great God. Let every creature in the sea and every flying bird let every mountain every field and valley of the earth let all the moons and all the stars in all the universe sing praises to the living God who rules them by his word. Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Hallelujah, glory be to our... Let's sing that again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. Amen. Be seated. Well, again, it's always a joy, quite a privilege for me to be able to preach the Word of God. I want to thank Pastor Mark for, again, that opportunity. I have been over the recent Sundays at our church in Columbia. I've actually been preaching on the doctrine of hell. As you will know, it's not a popular subject, but nevertheless, it is in the Word of God. So we are commanded as preachers of the gospel to exposit the text concerning the doctrine of hell. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And we will begin reading in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you receive your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, 
so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That is indeed God's word to God's people. God said in Isaiah 40 verse 8 that the flower fades and the grass withers, but God's word will endure forever. Our gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are, God, that we can approach you, God, with extolling your worth and your majesty. God, we do worship you in the beauty of your holiness. God, as we regard you high and lifted up, as we regard you with the highest of praise and worship, we pray, God, that you would find great pleasure and great delight in that. God, I pray that you would eclipse us in the outshining of your glory, that all that is seen, all that is heard here today is the word revealed and shown to us about the glorious gospel and truth of Jesus Christ. God, I pray you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are receptive for your truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John MacArthur said something that really, really did something in my heart. And I'm quoting him. He said, Hell will not be a place as some jokingly envision where the ungodly will continue to do their thing while the godly do their things theirs in heaven. Hell will have no friendships, no fellowship, no camaraderie, no comfort. It will not even have the debauched pleasures in which the ungodly live to revel on earth. There will be no pleasure in hell of any kind or degree, but only torment, day and night, forever and ever. End of quote. Jesus, as we preached last Sunday, had much to say, had much to communicate about the subject of hell. In fact, Jesus on a number of occasions preached on the eternal punishment of hell more than any other person in the Bible. And here's an interesting thought. The words of Jesus seen in the four Gospels are made up of a total of 1,870 verses in the four Gospels. 13% of the 1,870 verses are about judgment and hell. The point is, Jesus had more to say about the final judgment and eternal hell than any other subject matter about which he spoke and taught on. That being the case, why is it today in many pulpits and in many churches that particular subject is ignored and not taught and preached about? Why is that? Well, Dr. Stephen Lawson gives some interesting thoughts as to why that is the case. He says, Hell is often a word heard more often from unconverted men on a golf course than from biblical preachers standing in a pulpit. It is a word used more to spice up an ungodly conversation than to address a congregation. So Dr. Lawson goes on to say that this naturally raises the question, why do we hear so little about hell taught and preached on in church? Dr. Lawson goes on to say that the first among many reasons is the fact that the subject is so distasteful. No one really enjoys speaking about this truth. 
who actually wants to talk about the awful realities of the lake of fire and brimstone, or even the natural inclination is to avoid the matter like a plague. It's avoided. There's no real desire to talk about it. Because he goes on to say that the second reason is usually or is surely that the preacher's desire to maintain his support from the congregation, that if he's to maintain that, would mean that if he preached on hell as a sure cost, will sure cost him his popularity and at least some percentage of his flock. In other words, there's more of a fear of man and what he thinks than what God says and what he thinks that should be preached from the authority of his word. The subject is so jolting that just one sermon on eternal punishment feels like sitting through an untold number of them, Dr. Lawson says, because of its solemn weightiness, a single sermon on hell must feel like a lengthy series on its truth. He also said preaching on hell would probably be more likely to empty the church before it would fill it. Who wants to shrink a church when you could preach one on some other subject that would fill it? He goes on to say that preaching on hell will surely ruffle some feathers. And most pastors have enough troubles without adding to the list of their ministry difficulties. And then Dr. Lawson concludes by saying, For all of these reasons and more, the subject of hell is regularly avoided and rarely addressed in modern-day pulpits. And he says, and I agree, this needs to change. When we look back in Luke chapter 16 there, just for a moment, there's something that is powerful in these thoughts here that we just read. Of course, we know we're talking about two different men here. There's the rich man, and we don't know what his name is. And this Lazarus, we know the rich man was wealthy beyond probably comprehension. He lived in splendor. The poor man just, Lazarus laid at his gate hoping to get the crumbs from his table. Again, as we read in the text, he had sores and longer to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Even besides that, the dogs that were there would actually <coughs> lick on the sores of Lazarus. They both die. Lazarus is carried away into heaven by the angels and the rich man actually died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Which really indicates that he's probably in a place that totally surprised him because he had every idea that when he died, he would be going to heaven. It wasn't uncommon among Jewish men in particular. They really believed that their wealth and their riches would gain them some kind of favor with God, and they really thought that that would gain an interest way into heaven for them. I think it stands to reason, too, that it's probably going to be a lot of people that perhaps will end up in hell will be surprised by, them, by, the, by that themselves, who otherwise probably really thought that they would be in heaven. And obviously that would be because there was never truly a conversion. Never truly a trust and faith in Christ based on his terms of what it means to repent and have faith and trust in him as the son of God to receive the gift of eternal life. I really believe this rich man was surprised when he found himself in Hades which is a place of punishment for those who have died. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flames. 
That gives us every indication that the rich man was totally aware of all his surroundings. It means he was actually in a place. He was somewhere. And in this context, he was in Hades, a place of punishment. Every five physical sense was intact. He could see, he could smell, he could taste, he could hear, he could feel. All that was there. And he begged for mercy. That he would allow Lazarus just to get a tip of water on his finger and place it on his tongue because he was in anguish in the flames. Now we know that this is a parable or a story that Christ is conveying. But everything he's conveying in regards to how we see the graphic imagery here of hell and what the rich man was actually experiencing is completely true. Completely true. And we'll prove that beyond a doubt here in just a few minutes. But again, when you look at this particular text, one thing else that stands out is that he's still treating, that is the rich man is still treating Lazarus as a lowly no-count. As someone that would be no more good for than just going and get a piece of water on his finger and just let him drop it on my tongue. This man in his own self-righteousness, and his own wealth, his own prestige in his mind, still viewed Lazarus knowing that Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. This is the only place in the entire Bible where you'll find the two words Abraham's bosom. But it is taught in the Talmud, which is actually the Jewish commentary of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. That Abraham's bosom was just another way of speaking of heaven. So in this story here, Jesus is telling us that the rich man can see Lazarus, the poor man, in Abraham's bosom or heaven. Now there's nothing else in scripture that gives precedence that this is something that we would all experience or anybody else would experience that is in hell that they would be able to see into heaven. Jesus has got to be communicating this for the purpose of us seeing what hell is like and what he, that is the rich man, is desperate to have to get some kind of relief in the two words that were used to describe what he was experiencing in Hades, which was agony and torment. And then he says, but Abraham said, child, here's a clear example in this story that he is biologically in the ancestry or the lineage of Abraham. And by calling him a child, just because he was of that lineage and of that, that ancestry, it still did not guarantee that he would end up in heaven because of that. He says, remember that during your life, this is what Abraham is saying to him, your life you received good things. I mean, remember, he's in the house his house in splendor, he's actually feasting on more than enough. He's wealthy, he's rich, but here is a poor man outside who's begging, who is poor, who is very hungry and has nothing. But now we see a reversal in that between the two. We see a man that was in a house outside of that place now because where he's at is in hell and the man that was outside is now in a place called heaven and it's like the roles have reversed. And he says, during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things but now he is being comforted here and you're in agony. 
You're in agony. But he's being comforted. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fix, like a gorge. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over here, over from there to here. And let me just hasten to add that at death, for any human being, at that point, at death, your destiny is sealed. If you die in Christ, you go to heaven. If you die without Christ, you go to hell. Your destiny is clinged and clenched at the moment your heart beats its last beat and the moment you breathe your last breath. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house for I have the fried brothers, or they may warn them so that they will, they will not also come to this place of torment. Let me just briefly say something here that I think is so profound. We as Christians today that are orthodox in our belief, who embrace the word of God as the sole, complete, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, all-sufficient word of God who indeed believe this truth about the doctrine of hell, we shy away and we become reserved. And for some reason, we feel like that maybe we will offend someone or we will turn them off. Or yet, maybe you're thinking about yourself. What would they think of me? If I describe and try to communicate this story here in Luke chapter 16 and try to avoid and get around anything about God's eternal judgment in hell, if you die in your sin, unbelieving that that is where you will end up. But we have a man in hell, in hell. And this is the only testimony in the entire Bible you'll see a story related by Christ of someone in hell that's telling you and me about it. In all the Bible. And in hell where the gospel would do him no good. There's no remedial. There's, there's, there's no rehab. There's no, there's no relief found in good behavior. It maintains, it stays, it's there, but yet we see his testimony. Please send Lazarus back to my house, warn my five brothers, warn them about this place so they may not come here where I'm at now. Wow. Folks, if we don't tell people about this, who will? Is this reserved just for Pastor Mark or myself or whoever else would stand behind this sacred desk that we really have the responsibility, we're obligated, we have to tell this, but somehow you get away from it and somehow you're exempt from it? No. This rich man wasn't a pastor, he was just rich. He really thought just like what Jesus said in the parable over here in um, Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. This is this rich man. He's a Pharisee. It says in verse 9, he also told this parable, talking about Jesus, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That is a perfect definition of that rich man in hell who trusted in himself that he was righteous and viewed others with contempt. And notice how it explains how he thought. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. 
That seems like exactly what someone would do if they are depending on excuse me, their own self-righteousness to accomplish something that God would approve on that again would gain them some kind of approachableness in heaven that at best what he's praying to is himself. He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. And this is what he says, God, I thank you I'm not like those other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. See, one thing is for sure. A Jew did not believe a Gentile or a tax collector would ever go to heaven. So I'm not like them. I fast twice a week. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This tax collector, if there was ever a sinner's prayer, this is it. Are you ready? This is the sinner's prayer. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's the sinner's prayer. And he uses the definite article, the he wasn't looking around at anybody else. The only thing he was focused on was his heart before God. <clears throat> he identified himself as the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Who was the other? Had to be the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Do you see in the, in the story in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man finding himself in hell? Do you think he had an issue with exalting himself? Did he really think that his riches would get him into heaven? Did he really think any self-act of righteousness outside of imputed righteousness that only comes through Christ that again would be something that would gain him entrance way into heaven? Did he believe that? Well, the Bible says the one that exalts will be humbled. And where does the rich man find himself? To his surprise was in hell. And the man that prayed, God, again, as it says, be merciful to me, the sinner. He hums himself, but he's exalted. And that looks like, again, the picture of the poor man, Lazarus, as seen in Abraham's bosom. Well, when you think about hell and what it implies and what it really means in regards to God's eternal judgment and his punishment among the wicked and all those who would not believe and trust Christ is to realize something that I read recently a message that is in print that Jonathan Edwards preached out of Romans 2 4 and 5 this is what it says. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That word there lightly is a word that means in this text to think down on or to underestimate 
someone's or something's value and even to treat with contempt. Do you think lightly? Do you think down on the fact of the riches, the overabundance of riches of his kindness, which is really another word that speaks of his common grace, the blessing that God grants to all men? The truth of the matter is, every person that woke up this morning would be a recipient of this common grace. Common grace. If it were not for God's common grace, you would not even woke up this morning. And so you speak of his kindness, his, his common grace, and then even the word tolerance, which could be translated forbearance. It's a word that means to hold back. In other words, rather than destroying every person the moment he or she sins, God graciously holds back his judgment. Because the smallest sin deserves death. But God in his grace, his kindness, and his tolerance is to realize that he graciously holds back his judgment and he saves sinners in a physical and temporal way from what they really deserve through common grace. Then he uses the word patience. Another word for that is long-suffering here. Patience is to show them his saving nature. That they might come to him and receive salvation. That is eternal life. This actually speaks of the duration for which the Lord puts on display His goodness and His forbearance. And it all speaks of the general common grace of God. And then He goes on to say, of God leads you to repentance. Repentance is the very act of turning from sin to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. But he says here, but because of your stubbornness, because of your stubbornness, it's interesting that the Greek word there is skorots, and it's the English word for sclerosis. We get our word sclerosis from skorots for this word stubbornness. It's again, uh, we know that sclerosis is actually a thickening of the arteries. They call, they call it the hardening of the arteries. That's what it's actually called. But in this case, this word stubbornness, which again where we get the word sclerosis, a hardening of the arteries, is not a physical matter, but it's a spiritual one. And then he says an unrepentant heart or an impenitent heart. That simply means a refusal to repent. And accept the Lord's forgiveness, his pardon of sin by trusting in the redemption he has provided through Jesus Christ. But Jonathan Edwards had a way of articulating and communing, uh, co uh, uh, actually communicating a message that was so graphic and so intense that when it came to port about storing up wrath, in other words, because of the, the, Stubbornness and the unrepentant heart, even though God's common grace is there, and we actually think down on it, we don't pay attention to it, it's like we don't have anything to do with it, is to say that what takes place is you're storing up wrath. The unrepentant sinner, the impenitent sinner that has a hardening of the heart, that stubbornness of heart. Is storing up wrath, laying it up, aggregating wrath, to reject or to have nothing to do with God's grace and forgiveness and hang on to one's sin is to store up, to lay up, to lay up, to store up more of God's wrath and actually receive a more severe judgment from God from the words of Jonathan Edwards. And then it says the day of wrath and righteous judgment of God speaks of the final judgment that we preached on 
last week in Revelation 20, that great white throne judgment where the books are open and those whose names are not recorded along with the devil and Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet were cast in the lake of fire forever and eternal. And then shortly after that, we see a, a new heaven and a new earth on the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 15 and verse 33, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence, the judgment of hell? Now Jesus said that. Hell there is, translates from Gehenna. That word, Gehenna, translates hell 12 times in the New Testament and refers to the valley of Hinnom on the south and the east side of Jerusalem. It was in this place children were sacrificed and fired to the God of Molech. You can read that in 2 Kings 23.10 and in Jeremiah 7, 31-32. And some even hold that the valley of Hinnom was also the place where dead bodies of criminals and animals were burned. The truth is this awful place of fiery doom was used by Jesus and New Testament writers to symbolize the future place of punishment for the wicked. These references show that hell is real. People should strive to avoid this dreadful place. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, Then he, that is Jesus, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. When I think about salvation, one word that comes to my mind is rescue. Ultimately, he's rescuing you. When he calls you to himself, and you receive that gift of eternal life. He's literally rescuing you. How is he rescuing you? That salvation that is rescue, it is to say that God saves us from himself, by himself, to himself, and for himself. Rescued us from the reality of hell that is eternal Jesus defines hell as the conscious, everlasting punishment. And here's a PowerPoint. If you reject the doctrine of hell, you will have to say this, Jesus got it wrong. He was wrong. And again, in this story of the rich man and Lazarus, if you are to understand anything about the doctrine of hell, you must remember that Jesus explains the everlasting punishment of hell. It's horrific and it can't be altered. There are some very deviant views of hell, and there are certainly, and they are certainly not consistent with the doctrine of hell seen in God's word. To be alienated, alienationism, is the view of hell. This view of hell believes that all unsaved people who die without Christ will at some point pass out of existence or into a state of unconsciousness or nothingness. It basically is the idea that the wicked will cease to exist. It's almost heretical. There's another thought that is really unbiblical that people embrace when it comes to hell is called universalism. Increasingly, it's increasingly popular and it's the idea that all people will end up in heaven and that no one will be lost in hell forever. Which would include the devil, the fallen angels, the Antichrist, and everybody. God will restore everything and everything will be good and everybody will be saved. But universal, universalism can take several forms. One, some believe that the atoning work of Christ would be applied to all people whether they believe or not. 
Secondly, others believe that people die in unbelief or having never heard of Jesus will be given a postmodern opportunity to believe in Jesus to which all will respond in a positive way. And then thirdly, the idea of universalism asserts that people will be punished for a while in heaven but will eventually be welcomed into heaven. Then there's those that believe in what they would call spiritual punishment. Some hold that the lost will experience eternal conscious punishment but that this punishment is not a physical punishment in a literal place of fire. For them, fire is not literal, but rather represents alienation from God. And to them, hell is primarily about spiritual separation from God, not physical anguish in a tangible lake of fire. But here's a question, or here's an argument about that. This view does not adequately account for the reality that both the righteous and the wicked will rise bodily from the dead and are granted bodies suited to their eternal destinies. Remember that? If the lake of fire is just metaphorical, not a literal state of existence, does this mean that the new earth is only metaphorical and just a spiritual state of existence for believers? It is best to understand that both the righteous and the wicked receive bodies that fit them for their eternal destinies, whether on a, whether on a tangible new earth or in a real lake of fire. The support is, one day you're going to have a new resurrection body, and all those who die without Christ will have a body resurrected to themselves, and they will indeed be cast into the lake of fire. There's another thought too. It's called the negative conditions in this life. I'm sure you've heard this before. Some regulate hell to a figure of speech or a metaphor for difficulties in this life. You might hear a statement like this. My life is a living hell. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Sure you have. Such a perspective trivializes that hell really is and can lead people to think that this life is the worst that things can be. But all are they in for a sad awakening. If they die in that state without Christ, and then find a one, purgatory, one with Catholicism, a place or a state of suffering inhabited by the souls of sinners who are expiating their sins before going to heaven. In other words, that word expiate means that somehow they'll be able to amend or atone for their sin and somehow gain some merit badges and some kind of rehab that will eventually gain them an entrance way in heaven. There's nowhere in the Bible that purgatory is ever taught in any way, shape, or form. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 41 and 42, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of, out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire and that place where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 14, 9-11 says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image and who have received the mark of his name. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9 says, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Clearly what is seen is that these individuals are somewhere and they're definitely at some location and they are indeed in a place called hell. We mentioned how that the sentence last Sunday fits the crime. We don't set the sentence. We talked about that. It's in the hands of God. And the reason that hell goes on forever is because hell is not remedial, as we said, to find improvement for yourself. Not only is there no expiating that you can make any kind of amends for yourself in hell, but there's no remedial in hell, only retribution. Punishment administered in return for a wrong committed. Hell is not designed to make the wicked better. It's only retribute. All that is there is the punishment that fits the crime. I was thinking about Jesus. 
the way he spoke and what he said about hell. One thing is for sure. He was unapologetically never apologized for the truths he claimed and proclaimed. Graphically, Jesus described the truth about hell in the most clear and vivid way. The imagery is graphic and clear to see. Passionately, he was passionate. It's clear to see in all the New Testament Jesus preached on hell, he did so with passion and urgency. And also, he did it persuasively. Jesus preached in such a way that it was very persuasive. He always called for genuine repentance. It proclaimed, he proclaimed that, repent and be saved. Jonathan Edwards again. That noted theologian, a mind second to none, in Northampton, Massachusetts, was the one who again preached, as some would call that celebrated sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. By the way, if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. All you got to do is go to Google, search, hit, transcript, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But when I think how Jesus preached unapologetically, Graphically, passionately, and persuasively, oh my gosh, the one person that came to my mind was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. I heard R.C. Sproul say once that it was probably the most powerful message ever preached by any preacher in America today. He would say things like this in his message. I quote Jonathan Edwards. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like a fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. It was pastor of that church in Christ Church in Northampton. And he also preached this message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, on July 8th, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut, where there was a powerful, powerful effect on the people's lives that heard that message there in Connecticut. In fact, the sermon was highly affected, emphasizing God's wrath upon sinners unbelievers that after the death that after death through a very real horrific place called a fiery hell the powerpoint is that God extends grace to man to repent and trust totally in the atoning work of Christ to redeem and save their soul but Edwards did preach the grace of God that keeps the wicked from being overtaken by the devil which is part of his message in the sinners of an angry in sinners in the hands of an angry God Overtaken by the devil and his demons and cast to the fiery furnace. In fact, Edward said in his sermon, he says, Like greedy, hungry lions, they see their prey and expect to have it, but are for, but are for the presence kept back by the hands of God. Sounds like Romans 2, 4, and 5, doesn't it? He goes on to say in his message, Mankind's own attempts to avoid falling into the bottomless gulf or the abyss due to the overwhelming weight and pressure towards hell are insufficient as a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. One preacher said that whenever it was preached, it was with terror. It's another word that means he preached the fear of God. And this preacher said it was, it was part of a larger effort to turn sinners from a disastrous path to the rightful object of their affections, that being Jesus Christ who could save their soul. Then Pastor Stephen Williams at the church in Inville, Connecticut. I may have mentioned this, but me and a pastor friend, we went to that location. The church is gone, the building's gone. 
One thing that's beautiful about New England, if you've ever been there, they restore all those old church buildings. But for some reason, this one wasn't. But there was a huge piece of granite about the size of the top of this pulpit that on it, on that date in July 1749, where it says, Jonathan Edwards here preached his celebrated sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this pastor that was there actually journaled in his diary of what he witnessed one night. And this is what he said. Before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out through the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And so forth. So that the minister was obliged to desist and the shrieks and the cries were piercing and amazing. After some time of waiting, the congregation was still so that a prayer was made by Mr. Wheelock. And after that, we descended from the pulpit and discoursed with the people, some in one place and some in another. With amazement and astonishment, the power of God was seen on many souls who were hopefully wrought upon that night. And oh, the cheerfulness and oh, the pleasantness of their countenance that received comfort. Oh, that God would strengthen and confirm their new faith. <clears throat> and we sang a hymn and praised and dispersed the assembly. I think as I close, it would be remiss on my part if I didn't also include the criticisms that came along with the sermon that Edwards preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I was listening to R.C. Sproul recently, and he preached this message before he passed away, I think in 2018. And the name of the message he preached is called, uh, uh, He is a Consuming Fire. If you ever get a chance to listen to it, you would enjoy it. R.C. Sproul, He is the Consuming Fire. Sproul went on to say that, that in college... In college, he was required to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God for this reason, as an example of sadistic preaching. Sadistic preaching. Meaning, Jonathan Edwards must have derived some kind of pleasure from seeing some kind of pain and suffering coming to people, preaching with such an, un, an unapologetic way and doing it such graphic ways and doing it with such passion and such persuasion that it was actually required for them to read as an example of sadistic preaching. But Sproul went on to say, if Jonathan Edwards were sadistic, which he isn't, and if he believed in hell, which he did, a sadistic person would do everything in his power gleefully to tell his congregation that there is no such place. And then secretly enjoy the inevitability of their being plunged into it. Sproul concluded by saying, Jonathan Edwards loved God and he loved his people and he cared about their ultimate destination as should every true call pastor, every true call preacher that would indeed preach the truth of God's word. That preacher, that preacher would know that he must preach on God's eternal judgment for the unbelieving in hell that is eternal. So since there is a God, he is holy, he is perfect, he is just in all his ways, it is to say that he could not possibly be without divine wrath. The rich man truly put it in perspective. I beg you, go warn my brothers. The Apostle Paul put it in perspective when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word, your precious word. Oh, God. This is what you've said, Jesus. This is what you've told us about eternal judgment, damnation, and hell. May we be mindful of the mercy and the grace of God. 
that brings repentance in the heart of one who would indeed say to Christ, forgive me of my sin. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross to provide redemption. You purchased a people that would believe and embrace that truth. God, I pray today that we would know that and believe that with all our hearts.